Uh, what a joy to be with you guys tonight. This is a special place. Uh, this room is pretty um, amazing. I want to say thank you to Willis, uh, my good friend, for having me. And thank you guys for welcoming me to your uh, university. Um, I uh, live in D.C. from Chicago, so I'm super excited. The Bears, we are now three and four, one yesterday. Uh, so, God, uh, pray for our passing game. Um, but but there, is, there is hope. We are three and four. Tonight, we look at a passage. Uh, thank you, Lucy, for just reading it. Um, a fascinating um, conversation between Peter and Jesus. And what I want us to focus on is this passage goes from really great to really bad, really fast. Uh, and if we understand why um, that is the case, it will help us to understand uh, the text. So for the passage we just read, let's just go ahead and um, dive in. There's a story that I often read about a young woman, a high schooler, who desired to go to her dream college, but her heart sank when she read this question on the application. You guys may know it. Are you a leader? Being honest yet sad, the young lady, she wrote, no, I am not, and returned the application to the school, and weeks later, she waited for the college to write back. And to her surprise, she read these words, dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year, our college will have 1,500 new leaders. But we feel it is imperative that we have at least one follower. You are admitted. <laughs> and there you have it, the blessings of followership. But I've got good news tonight from DC. This young woman is not the only one blessed to be a follower, but everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ is blessed because we follow the greatest leader of all. This Jesus pursues you, wants you, chooses you, draws you into himself, and then calls you to follow him. Despite each of your past failures, your present struggles, your future sins, Jesus still looks at you tonight and says, I want you to follow me. Of no merit of our own, but out of his love, Jesus calls us to follow after him. And, and this is why I love this text. This is what we've seen in the book of Matthew. For chapter four told us, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, preaching and teaching and healing every disease and affliction, and great crowds followed him. So you can use your imagination. Can you see it? Large crowds are following Jesus after seeing his signs and his miracles. Individuals are compelled to follow Jesus after hearing his words of forgiveness. Onlookers and the fringe students begin to follow Jesus after beholding how the sick are brought back to health, the demons are cast out, and the lame are made to walk. But Jesus is cool because he calls a core group of 12, not the religious elite of his day or the popular here at Washington and Lee, but 12 fishermen and tax collectors to follow after him. And there's also a cool small group of women who follow Jesus, including Jesus's own mother, Mary. This is Jesus's core group who Jesus has called to follow him on this journey. But here's the question that begs of us tonight in the next few moments that we have. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does he call you to at 18, 19, maybe up to 24? In our passage, Jesus is going to show us in the next few moments what it means to leave here and be a follower of him. But first, we must know the identity of the one we follow. And this is our first point. To follow Jesus, we first need a right confession of who Jesus is. Watch it. Verse 13, we pick it up. 
Jesus was coming into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Matthew goes into story mode. He says, picture this. Jesus was ministering. He was preaching. He was doing the miraculous in Jewish territory. But he takes his disciples on a journey 25 miles northward to the district of Caesarea Philippi. This is an important city known for its paganism, its worship of the Greek gods. But it's here in this pagan city where God wants to reveal who Jesus is. And as Jesus is walking, I probably just had some Chick-fil-A. And as he's walking, he poses to his disciples a question. He stops and he says, hey, who do people say that the son of man is? What's the word on your Twitter feed about me? Who, who do the crowds confess me to be? Because Jesus is desiring to know if people have found out about his true identity. And this is an appropriate question for two reasons. One, because at this time, everyone is looking for the Christ, the Savior. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they break their relationship with God after eating the forbidden fruit. Sin and misery is brought into the world. And God's people, who were once loved and cherished by him, now as a result are often attacked by ungodly enemies, are trapped in sin, have suffering and loss in their lives, are kicked, exiled outside of the land. And throughout the Old Testament, the people are wondering, God, will there ever be a day when our relationship will be right again? Will, will things be made right? And what God does is out of his love, he promises that one day he would send the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, to restore the people in the land, to rebuild what's been broken down, to, to rescue God's people from sin and misery. And so this person, the Christ, is someone who's going to fulfill all the Old Testament promises and hopes. He's going to bring justice and righteousness in the city. He's, he's going to heal broken relationships. He's going to be the king of Israel. And, and the context in the book of Matthew is so much like our present day 2022. It's a time of political corruption at the hands of the Romans. There's cultural and ethnic division. There's much confusion, physical and emotional exhaustion, and everyone is searching and yearning for the Christ. Who, who would it be? Who, who's going to redeem God's people? Who's going to be the light triumphing over sin and evil? But this is also the right question by Jesus because he's trying to see, have people known from my miracles who I am? But if you see in the text, People are all the way confused. Some say he's John the Baptist. Others say maybe Jesus is Elijah. Some say maybe he's Jeremiah. But Jesus responds by asking a deeper question. Who do you say that I am? He asks his disciples, what do you say about me? Because this is the real question, isn't friends? We're living in a time where everyone on our campus and our society has an opinion about Jesus. But what really matters is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? And this question, which Jesus poses to the group, gets answered by my favorite disciple, the one with the biggest personality, the passionate, all-in disciple who likes to share his opinion whether he's asked or not. We all know that type of person. Peter steps forward as the spokesperson. Can you see him? He says, Jesus, the Pharisees haven't gotten it. My friends, my roommates haven't understood who you are, but I know who you are. You are the Christ. You, you ask, what's brought Peter to this point? Well, if we read in Matthew, Peter has had some crucial moments with Jesus. Remember, it was Peter who was in that crowd of 5,000, where the only food to eat was a middle school boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish. But he watched Jesus turn it into a banquet, and he found out that Jesus is that provider. 
Peter was in the living room when Jesus came over to heal his sick mother, and he learned that Jesus is the healer. Peter was in the boat that was knocked around by the raging storm, but he heard Jesus tell the wind and the waves to be quiet, and he learned that even nature has to obey Jesus' command. Peter saw Jesus stretch out his hand towards an unclean leper, and he saw that there is nobody on campus who was too unclean to be touched by Jesus. Peter was called by Jesus to walk to him on water, and as he took his eyes off Jesus, Jesus caught him up, and he said, You are God's beloved son. And Peter, whose heart has been worked on by God, is now compelled to give his fullest confession. Who do you say that I am? Well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus, you're God's anointed, the truly prophesied Messiah. You're you're the one my grandmother prayed for, the one my father was hoping for, the one the prophets were spoken of. You're the long awaited king of Israel, the true son of David. And Jesus answers him in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you didn't learn this in Bible college. Nobody taught you this, but my father in heaven revealed it to you. And my question for you tonight, RUF, has the father revealed it to you that Jesus is the Christ? Has he poured grace into your soul to believe? Has he opened your eyes to see that in a time of societal decay, disappointment, exhaustion and pain, that there is still a savior, that the Lord is present? Has he shown you that Jesus is the true one our world has been searching for, the Messiah who is the light and hope in every one of our dark moments, the one who will cleanse your sin? He'll rock you to sleep at night when you're anxious. He'll renew your weary soul. He'll steady your anxious heart. He's the one who's trustworthy and faithful to save. Who do you say that he is? And Peter, well, he's the first person to confess to adjust Address Jesus directly as the Christ. And Jesus blesses Peter in response. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell. Wow, that's a cool verse. Shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, Peter, you're the rock, which is a word that means the courageous confessor of my identity. And on this rock, I'll use you to build and strengthen my church through your preaching, through your letters. But not only that, but I promise that that I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So nothing in culture, nothing in the spiritual realm, not even widespread persecution of Christian Christians can ever crush Christ's church for it will never perish. It will never die. But Jesus will be faithful to his church. And this is why this is my charge to you to always stick with the church, to stick with RUF. Because many things will fall in the years to come, but the church, I mean, it's here to stay. Jesus is going to build his church and will be victorious in the end. And you can imagine, this is my spiritual imagination. Peter is at an all-time high in this moment. He said, James and John, did you hear the Lord when he said that I was the rock? Mama Mary, you coming on a trip with the boys this time? Yes. (laughs) Just a few minutes ago, your son, he said I was the rock. Thomas, Jesus all the way up, up there, just behind. Hey, bro, I know you're out of breath, but that was pretty cool when Jesus said I was a rock a few minutes ago. <laughs> Peter is at an all-time high, and Jesus says, Peter, stop, please, calm down. Verse 20, I need you to tell nobody that I'm the Christ. But Jesus, Why? <laughs> Don't you want the world to know that you're the Christ, the Savior we've been waiting for? Why why do you want us to keep your identity a secret? Well, Jesus knows 
At this time, there are many different assumptions of who the Christ would be. Some think he's going to be a political warrior who's going to take the people from under the Roman yoke. Others think the Christ is going to be a revolutionary. Some say he's going to be an anointed deliverer. And since Jesus knows that that the word is going to spread about him, he charges his disciples, tell nobody of my identity. Because it would be a sad day if the world had a misinterpretation of what Christ came to accomplish. But it would be even worse if one of Jesus's own disciples had a misunderstanding of his mission. And this brings us to our second point. We're rolling. Not only does following Jesus require having a right confession of who Christ is, but we also need a right understanding of what Christ came to do. And in verse 21, Jesus tells us what he came to do. From that time, he began to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is explaining, hey, fellas, this is why I came. Not only will Israel's leaders persecute me, but but they're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to be raised. This is why Jesus came. This is the Messiah's mission. In order to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, in order to satisfy God's wrath, in obedience to his father, Jesus must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. This is this is no accident, but will be divine necessity. This is God's plan, how he will save you and me from our sins. However, as Jesus is explaining this to the group that he's bound to suffer and die, there is one disciple who cannot fathom it, one disciple who cannot believe it, one disciple who is all the way upset and refuses to accept how the Christ must suffer. And who would you guess that it is? Because for Peter, his assumption of who the Christ would be is also different. But can you see Peter wrestling within himself, confused and agitated as he listens to Jesus describe how he's going to be falsely accused of wrong and then crucified on a shameful criminal's cross? Lord, suffering, death, but you're supposed to conquer the Romans. You're supposed to do away with my problems. You're supposed to put Israel back on top. We're supposed to be on top together. But what do we do when what we expected Jesus to do for us is not at all what he does? Well, in Peter's case, he rebukes Jesus. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter grabs Jesus by the arm. He takes him away from the group and he begins to disprove of Jesus' statement. Peter gets out of his rightful place as a disciple, which is behind Jesus, and begins telling Jesus what he's going to do. Because when we fail to understand that Jesus is Lord, we begin telling Jesus how we're going to live and how he needs to act instead of getting behind him and allowing him to lead us. And this is exactly what Peter does. Because Peter's view of who the Christ should be is not one who suffers, but one who conquers. Peter believes that Christ should be somebody dominant who will defeat Rome and save Israel. Far be it from you, Lord, you shall never, ever have to go to the cross. And so since Peter's view of Messiahship doesn't match Jesus's, Peter rebukes his own Messiah. And Jesus says, God, watch Jesus. He, he gets kind of gangster here. He rebukes Peter in return. Verse 23. 
But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You guys ever said that on campus to your roommate? Get behind me. You are a hindrance to me. And it sounds pretty serious, but, but it's like, Peter, you were just called a rock and now you're called Satan. My gosh. But remember, in Matthew chapter four, you guys know that story when Jesus is in the wilderness tempted by Satan. What was Satan trying to do? He wanted Jesus to go after his crown without going to the cross. Because Satan knows if, if Jesus goes to the cross, I'm done. Satan was like, Jesus, you can get praise and glory. You can get all this worship, but you don't have to go to the cross. And now Satan is using Peter to do the same thing. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. You're leading me to act contrary to God's will. But he also says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. For, for Peter has a human-centered view of Messiahship, comfort, ease, pleasure, and power, and dominance without any suffering or resistance. But, but how often do I as a Christian live just like Peter? I often want the blessings of Christ without the present troubles that are associated with being a Christian. We don't want to suffer and go through trials. We don't want to be rejected for the faith or be known on campus as a creepy Christian. We desire to live comfortable Christian lives and do everything in our power to avoid suffering, refusing to accept that it may be God's will to mature you through suffering. Suffering may not be a sign that God has left you, but that God is actually at work in you, that he's with you, that he's moving in your life. But when our minds are fixed solely on what feels good rather than asking God, what are you doing this year? What are you up to? We become a stumbling block. Thus, while Peter had a beautiful confession of who Christ is, he had a deep misunderstanding of what Christ came to do. He had a right confession of Jesus's identity, but failed to grasp Jesus's mission. And what Jesus has to teach Peter and what he has to teach us is his purpose in coming to earth is not to demolish his enemies, but to die for his enemies. For his ministry is not set up through conquer, conquering and dominance, but Jesus' ministry is cross-shaped. For Jesus is the suffering servant who gives his life to save you and me. But it begs the question, if Jesus came to be the suffering servant, what does that mean for us as his followers? And this is our last point before we worship and go on with our night. To be a follower of Jesus is to imitate him in his suffering here on earth, to be exalted with him in eternal life. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him or her deny their self, take up their cross and follow me. This is the call, RUF. If anyone desires to come after Jesus, you must deny yourself, no longer living for your own self-interest or the own life plan that you wrote for yourself but daily living for God and taking up your cross, surrendering, surrendering your entire life to him and actually following him, imitating the way that Jesus lived in your own life. And so as Jesus gave up his own will and obedience to the father, taking up his cross, we are to follow in his footsteps. It was one writer who said there were no crown wearers on earth. There were no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. Excuse me. You say, Chris, what does it look like to even take up my cross? What does that look like? The best way I can illustrate it is the story of a Christian man, an old man who became a Christian way late in life. 
And he was so eager to grow in his Christian life that one day he went home and he got a sheet of paper and he wrote down everybody he would preached to and every sin he'd give up for the Lord. And so the next day at church, he would come and he put it on the altar somewhere around here. But he felt so empty afterwards. So he went home, ripped up the list, made a new list. He added so many more things. So next Sunday he came and put the list on the altar, but he still felt empty. And so he went to his pastor and he was like, hey, man. I don't know if he said, hey, man, but that's my interpretation. He said, hey, man, what's wrong? And the pastor said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get a blank sheet of paper, write your name on the list, and put that on the altar. And this is what it looks like to be a college student who follows Jesus. Jesus, I put my name on the list. I give my name, my life is yours now. Whatever you call me to do, wherever you send me, whether it involves suffering or not, Jesus, I want to be yours and I want to follow you. And we truly follow Jesus when we imitate him and surrendering our lives for for him. But there's some student in here asking, but why, Chris? That's that's awesome. But why is it worth denying my own desires to, to live for Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us in this text because of the countercultural truth that whoever desires to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. Whoever is bent on holding the things so tightly in this world and rejects the call to follow Jesus will end up losing everything they tried so hard to keep. For following Jesus is costly. But if you relinquish it in faith to Jesus, you'll gain life now and in eternity. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate, that he's worth any price you ever have to pay to follow him. He's more precious. He's better than any title, any treasure, any pleasure or comfort the world could ever offer. And this is what he's saying. What, What does it benefit a person to gain the world, to gain everything the world has to offer but forfeit their soul? By not following me. What, what's worth you holding on to tonight? What does it profit a student? To do whatever you can to be liked by everyone. Accepted by culture. And not known as a creepy Christian. But forfeit your soul. What does it profit a single student? To date someone who doesn't love Christ. Because it feels better than being alone this semester. But you hurt your own relationship with Christ. What does it profit a young person to to hold on to that sin because it feels fun in the moment? It gives momentary satisfaction, but in the morning, you feel so empty and lonely and ashamed. What does it profit a college guy or girl to give every bit of your affection and time to academics, your future career plans, and other people, knowing that, man, my soul is really craving time to spend with God? It was the rich young ruler who is just like us, who was called in Matthew 19 to go sell everything and give it all up to follow Jesus. But in one of the saddest verses in the Bible, it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And so here you have a young guy. He's 20 years old. He's got the girls. He's got the cars. He's got everything. And Jesus says, hey, man, let that go and follow me. And the rich young man says, sorry, Jesus, I can't do it. What would have been worth holding on to for that young man? How would you have counseled him that afternoon? But Jesus says, trust me that everything you need is found in me. But not only that, but I'll repay everything according to what everyone has done. So every tear you've cried, every friend you've lost for being a Christian, 
Every cross you've had to bear, Jesus will restore it all when he returns. There's a reward waiting for us who finish this race. And so as I conclude, tonight the message is simply, Jesus is the Christ who came to suffer and die on the cross for you and me. And he calls you and me to imitate him, following him by suffering and dying in the same way. To be a Christian is to accept the seasons of victory and fun and success like tonight, which is amazing. But also knowing there's going to be moments of rejection, discomfort and sadness because our ministry is cross-shaped. But the good news is God is faithful. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's gone to prepare a place for us. We're secure in his hand. And so for every student who believes, who gives their life to Jesus Christ, you're going to receive eternity in perfect peace, love, joy, and satisfaction in the presence of God. Therefore, following Jesus tonight is worth it now and forevermore. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for blessing us uh, with another night. God, I thank you for every student uh, in here who's so amazing. Um, God, you're doing so many things in their life, and I ask that you would help each and every single one of us, including myself. Uh, when it is tough to follow you, whether it be because of discomfort or um, maybe a shame or we feel like we don't measure up, God, I ask that you would encourage us that you want us to follow you, and I ask that you would give us the courage to do so. We thank you. Um, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.